is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. J&J's vaccine. We knew it was coming. It's another tool in the toolbox to fighting COVID-19. Yeah, it's those tools that we need to get us on the other side of this pandemic. And Mm -hmm. joining us now is Dr. David Levy, Chief Executive Officer of EHE Health. He joins us on the phone right here from New York. EHE is a healthcare provider. uh, And Dr. Levy is a public health expert and veteran epidemiologist. Hey, uh, Dr. Levy, thanks so much for for joining us today. Um, How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. So what do you make of the J&J news? It is great news. It's another vaccine, another tool, and it's going to be widely available in the next uh, couple months, and I think it's fantastic. What's, what's Highly effective, yeah. and uh, we're all looking forward to it. So you, you still consider it highly effective, even though it's not as effective as the mRNA vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech? It is absolutely as effective as in preventing hospitalizations and deaths, and that's what this epidemic is about, reducing, uh, that's what the treatment for the epidemic should be, namely reducing lethality. And it's as good as any of the other two. Well, and so Tim and I were, Dr. Levy, if I can interrupt for a second, like Tim and I were, were joking that we don't go to Dwayne Reed and I get the flu vaccine and I'm like, what's the efficacy? I mean, what is considered the range of a really effective vaccine? Well, it, it all depends what you're immunizing for. Okay. And uh, so you have to start there. And one of the issues uh, with um, this particular virus is that it is highly or much more lethal in people over 65 and those people with comorbidities uh, that relate to lifestyle like diabetes, hypertension, and the like. And if you can, in fact, have a vaccine that's targeted specifically at reducing hospitalization and death in those people, uh, you've essentially dropped the lethality of the epidemic, potentially even lower than the lethality of a flu epidemic. So this is a really good piece of news, uh, quite candidly. Hey, how's the messaging been in general about the vaccine? Because I've been having this debate with some friends recently, because we've heard so much, if you get the vaccine, don't change your behavior, keep wearing a mask. Uh, And I wonder what that does to the way that people think about how we're going to get through this pandemic and just what is the point of getting the vaccine if you can't change your behavior? Well, you know, that's a great question. The answer is you want to continue your social distancing, your mask wearing behavior, as long as the uh, virus is endemic in the community. And, and that's what herd immunity is about. It's not about eliminating the disease completely. It's about reducing the natural, reducing, coming to a, a level of immunity whereby there's no natural community spread. And as we get to a point where there's no natural community spread and we can now basically address and contain any focal outbreak, we can gradually loosen social distancing, mask wearing, and the like. And so it really depends, uh, frankly, at what level uh, the community is with respect to immunity and how soon they get to a situation where you're just going to have these sporadic and fairly well-contained smaller uh, outbreaks. And by the way, that's exactly the same thing with any other kind of infectious disease outbreak like the flu or others. All right. And that's that's good to know. I'm curious, 
what you are seeing within your employee base and within the healthcare system about healthcare employees? Um, is everybody increasingly getting more comfortable, though, about taking the vaccine and getting the vaccine? Well, um, look, I, you hear the same reticence uh, that you have, uh, that we've, we've all heard about getting the vaccine, in particular, uh, certain segments of the population that have more mistrust for the vaccine. And, and I, I get it and I understand it. Uh, but, but I have kind of like a, a kind of half cup full point of view on that, mm-hmm. which is, you know, this is a brand new technology, particularly the two mRNA vaccines, completely new, completely new science. And, you know, at worst, you have 70% of the people who say that they're going to get it right out of the gate. I mean, that's an early adoption factor of 70%, which any CEO producing any product would be thrilled to have. You know, unfortunately, when we started down this path, you know, we forgot about the marketing and distribution that we probably should have been doing last summer to get people uh, up to a, a level of comfort. Now, that being said, you know, as you probably... Or education, seen, right? Or not education. even just marketing, but education. Well, I have to tell you, it's not even going to be education, in my view, in, in the future. You're, you're now seeing uh, around the world people talking about vaccine passes and the ability to travel from country to country. Uh, the EU is talking about this tomorrow. I think Israel and Greece have already gone into a pact. We've seen uh, airline, the airline industry really talk about this. The truth is, as we learn to live with COVID, we won't eliminate COVID. We'll be living with COVID like we live with influenza. People are going to need to have proof that they're immunized. Mm. And I will tell you, if... Those people want to get who are reticent to be immunized uh, stay that way. They won't be able to get back to a normal life. They won't be able to get into a large venue like a Madison Square Garden or maybe a Broadway show or maybe a restaurant. They won't be able to travel to a country where their parents may live unless they can prove uh, uh, that, that they're immunized. And that's what's going to be driving people to almost full uh, uh, population immunization is really to get your life back to normal. You're going to be you're going to be able to have to show proof that, in fact, you have indeed been immunized by one of the vaccines that have been approved. You know, there's a point that's a practical reality, a point that that, drew, that our colleague Drew Armstrong, senior editor for healthcare, made on Quick Take this morning was that early on in the vaccination process, we saw people who were reticent about getting vaccines or hesitant to get a vaccine. Right. Once they saw people in their orbit start to get them, that went away. Yeah. And they started to get them. So this is happening in real time. One thing we want to ask you, um, Dr. Levy, is something that came in to us from one of our, our Twitter followers and said, messenger RNA changes your DNA. So in his book, the JJ and vaccine, a regular vaccine is better than uh, either the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine. What do you say to that? I have never heard that. I have no idea what he's talking about or to what he's referencing. mRNA is is basically just the code against which uh, the cells are, you know, producing uh, the the antibodies. It doesn't do fundamentally anything to a human being, to your own DNA. I just just don't know of any any evidence or anything to substantiate that comment. But I think it does speak to the reticence that people have when it comes to, you know, quote unquote, new technology. Right. Like you were talking about this idea that having a a, a new product that has 70 percent adoption is really good. But there are still people who are like, hey, wait a second. I want to see something different. 
I, I completely agree with you. I mean, this is the whole issue because it's kind of a scary notion, a, a brand new technology. We're creating mRNA. We're putting in the body. It sounds like DNA. And that's why uh, a broad, uh, you know, campaign ought to be introduced that, you know, educates the public in, you know, fairly clear and easy to understand way about what exactly it is that this new science has discovered. And, and by the way, I, I think that this is just the beginning. I think many new vaccines in the future are going to be adopting this new technology. Uh, it's safe and it's effective. And it's, a, and it's a great advance for humankind. And uh, it's a kudos to all those people who, and all those biologists who, who've invented it. I mean, it's just a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful uh, advance for science and for humanity. So uh, I think it's just about education, quite frankly. And to be fair, new, but also it's, a, it's not something that they just developed overnight. They've been working on it for years. Well, yeah, for years, for other reasons, right. and uh, for other reasons, but you know, uh, the, the the funding and the acceleration that uh, the, that coincided together, you know, with the co- with the uh, coronavirus pandemic, r- really has pushed this thing over the goal line. So, you know, there are a lot of great benefits from this. All right. So, when you look forward, what do you see as kind of our biggest obstacles still in getting us to a post-COVID world? You know, I think, first of all, is continuing the immunization campaign and making sure that the supply chain is great. And I I think that uh, we're throwing the kitchen sink at that, Mm. and people just have to keep on moving at that. Uh, You know, the idea of variants is always a wild card out there, but the surest prevention for new variants is the reduction of replication in new human beings who have been infected. And the best way still at that is to maximize uh, immunization. So, you know, keep on moving very, very hard at that. In the meantime, all of the other things need to be uh, uh, really stringent, the social distancing, the masking, and the like. And ultimately, I think as we get back to a more normal situation, we'll be able to start relaxing some of those constraints. But really right now, it's to move hard and fast at immunization in this country as much as possible. Hey, Dr. Levy, can you talk a little bit about the alarming surge in, in mental health that we've seen? Anxiety, depression, burnout, and stress. I mean, we're seeing it everywhere. Yeah, so this is a big problem. We see it in our patients. We see it in in, in many of the employees of of, of, all, of of our clients. And, you know, this has been going on now for a year. And, uh, you know, we've now been talking about how to bring people safely back to work. And we, we find that it's people have gotten into this grind of this is the way life is going to be and always going to be. And it's going to be difficult to get people into a, a kind of a – a new way of thinking of getting them out of that rut and getting them back into a more normal and socially engaged life. I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges for uh, over the next six months. It's not that the people who want to just don't want to jump out and come back to work. Sure, there's lots of people like me who, who want to do that. But there are a lot of people who are, have been really stuck in this rut with an enormous amount of depression, uh, suicidal ideation, as you know, and it's a very big problem. We're beefing up for uh, all employers are beefing up support around mental health. We're looking closely at reach, you know, uh, reaching out through telehealth and the like to help support employees. But I think that that's going to be one of the biggest barriers. Yeah. But I have to say, once we get through it, once yeah. we start to have people bring back to normal, I think uh, we're going to get through that phase. Normal. Can't wait. Uh, Dr. David Levy, thank you so much. CEO at EHE Health. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. 
from Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Business Week had a great cover story back in July. It was about the COVID vaccine front runner at the time. It was the work AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford uh, was doing, Tim. And since then, we know that the path forward for AstraZeneca vaccine, it really hasn't been a straight one. Yeah, we've been hearing a lot about Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, and of course, Pfizer and BioNTech. But AstraZeneca, not so much. Right. We've got an update on them in Bloomberg Business Week, uh, taking a look at some of the new data that the company hopes can kind of get its vaccine back on track, reporting for the magazine, Bloomberg News healthcare reporter James Patton on the phone, Peyton on the phone in London, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber on the access line in Brooklyn. James Peyton's story, I feel like it's such an important one to kind of understand what's been going on at Astra. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, obviously here in America, Astra hasn't um, figured into the conversation quite as much, but it is one that's really important in Europe and elsewhere in the world. And it, it, it we, you know, it still has uh, potential and we're about to see some results from a U.S. trial that may clear up some of the confusion. But it's a big may because the confusion has led to a backlash in Europe. And, and that's sort of where the story uh, uh, that James and others uh, uh, wrote for this issue of the magazine begins. So James, what did you guys uh, learn? What's been the continent's response to Astra's rollout? Yeah, uh, well, good to be with you. I mean, we're hearing reports out of Europe in uh, places like Italy and Germany and elsewhere um, of health workers and others um, pushing back on this vaccine, basically perceiving it to be less effective um, in some way or you know, cause for concern when it comes to possible side effects. And there are, um, you know, local anecdotes, I guess you could call them, circulating of health workers experiencing some bad reactions to the vaccine. Um, Now, you know, the company says these are all consistent with what has been observed in uh, some, you know, participants in clinical trials. um, But that clearly hasn't held matters um, for, you know, AstraZeneca and Oxford, its partner. And there's been a lack of data on, the effectiveness in older adults. Um, you know, the vaccine was given the, the green light for all adults by the European regulator, the equivalent uh, to the FDA out here. Um, but at least 10 EU countries haven't cleared it for people um, over 65 due to that insufficient um, evidence. So, uh, you know, in some places, I think last we checked in Germany, um, only something like 13% of the uh, roughly 1.5 million Astra doses that have been delivered to the country has actually been injected uh, into arms. And it's early days, but obviously that doesn't that doesn't bode well. So the company is trying to turn that around. Governments also realize they'll need to um, rely on this vaccine to immunize a large part of the population. So what do we know about how effective it, it is, James? Because as you and your colleagues write, Uh, Since Astra and Oxford announced their initial results last year, data on the vaccine's effectiveness in preventing symptomatic symptomatic infection have ranged from 60 to 90 percent. And that's because of dosing amounts and and regimens in the trial, different ones. Exactly. And that is one of the key uh, issues uh, revolves around effectiveness. And, you know, you mentioned the other vaccines, Pfizer's, Moderna's, um, you know, all the companies say over and over again, this isn't a race. You know, it's not a race. But in this case, um, it is, you know, it, it turned out to be a race in many ways. Uh, you know, following Pfizer and Moderna was a difficult position uh, to be in. Those, com- you know, those companies have attracted most of the attention. Um, you know, you, you probably recall when they reported their clinical trial results that the numbers were stunning. And, and you know, even if it wasn't that simple, they appeared to be totally clear and unambiguous. I mean, both... 
uh, attained efficacy levels of around 95%. So that was one number to digest. It was hugely positive. And now AstraZeneca, you know, in Oxford, it's a different story. When they released their results, as you say, there was a, a wide range of numbers. It was 62%, 90%, finally an average of 70%. Uh, it was very confusing, uh, not just for journalists, uh, but for scientists. Everyone was scrambling to make sense of just how effective um, this vaccine is. And, you know, the takeaway to disease experts is that all these frontrunners, including AstraZeneca, look like they provide comparable and almost complete protection against severe illness and death. So those are the most important factors to consider. Um, so when it comes to those critical outcomes that will end the pandemic, this vaccine is still expected to play um, a crucial role. But unfortunately, there are all these questions swirling around AstraZeneca and Oxford that have hurt the way the vaccine is perceived. That was uh, the point that I just wanted to sort of underscore there is like, just because the results um, have been confusing, there still is a, I guess you could think of it as like a portfolio of vaccine approach here, which is that as long as it keeps people from having severe illnesses, the overwhelming hospitals and, and you know, hopefully um, dying, like it, it may, the AstraZeneca vaccine, like still may prove a really important role, especially on a global stage. Um, so so when you think about that and then, you know, these these forthcoming U.S. results, what do, what do, what do we expect? Like, is there any sense that, you know, there could be just more confusion, more data equals more confusion? <laughs> I mean, definitely. I mean, the U.S., you know, you mentioned the, uh, you know, the U.S. data. So this is going to be from trials of you know, tens of thousands of uh, participants. Um, and that's going to be um, coming out in, in the coming weeks, I think. And that's going to be uh, closely scrutinized and pivotal uh, for the two uh, U.K. partners. And I think about a quarter of the participants in that study are older than 65. So we should get a good indication of the protection it offers um, older adults. Um, so, you know, AstraZeneca is keen to uh, you know, demonstrate its, its potency in older people. And I think an FDA decision um, we've reported uh, is expected as early as April. So this is going to be a key stretch for, um, for uh, Astra and Oxford. And, and as you say, I think you alluded to it, I think it's overlooked sometimes right. uh, how much the world is counting on this vaccine. I mean, it, it's yeah. huge, uh, assuming it's it's uh, it's rolled out and there aren't uh, further delays. Yeah, yeah. And listen, all the doctors that we talk to say you're going to need multiple tools in that toolkit, that COVID toolkit, in order to get control of it. Joel Weber, thank you so much, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, uh, and of course James Payton, healthcare reporter. Check out his story in Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes, Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Well, this caught our attention. You were talking about this on one of our planning calls today, Tim, about how the capital is being turned or being turned into a fortress is really kind of bringing on the push to make it a state. A, a state. And look, D.C. statehood has been something that liberals and Democrats have wanted for a very long time. Right. The big question, is it ever going to happen? Yeah, so let's put that question to Amanda Colson Hurley. She's politics editor at Bloomberg Business Week. She's with us from the nation's capital. Amanda, good to have you here uh, with Tim and myself. So tell us a little bit about your, well, first of all, give us a visual. And I know we're on radio, we're on YouTube uh, for those who are also watching there. But give us the visual of what DC is like right now. Sure. Um, 
So I actually went down uh, to the area around the Capitol on Sunday and uh, walked all around um, the Capitol as well as a number of the well-known landmarks nearby, like the U.S. Supreme Court, the Library of Congress. Um, are all behind uh, uh, a big fence, a seven-foot-tall fence uh, topped in most parts with these coils of razor wire. Um, There are troops patrolling, um, you know, stationed every, I would say, every 100, 200 feet or so, little clumps clumps of of troops. Um, And so, uh, really, there's this kind of compound now on Capitol Hill that's about uh, three miles in circumference. So um, it's a very uh, a dramatic difference from uh, that area. If anyone has you know, been there before as a tourist or, or as a local, uh, you know, which used to be quite open, obviously a great attraction for, uh, for visitors, uh, you know, a very, um, very famous views of the Capitol Dome. Um, so uh, it, it's all looking looking pretty different right now. If you're watching us on YouTube right now, you see some of these images that that Amanda took uh, that with uh, that she took and she sent to us. Um, uh, Amanda, I, I I gotta ask what the connection is here with, with DC statehood, right? The relationship between the federal government and the district and and, and law enforcement. Well, right as as you said uh, just now. The push for uh, statehood in D.C. is not something that's sprung up overnight. I mean, it's been years, decades uh, that, uh, you know, some activists have been uh, pushing for D.C. to become a state. Um, But I think uh, a couple of things happened. First of all, uh, the Democrats won the White House and uh, both houses of Congress, although they control the Senate very narrowly. And this gave statehood advocates, uh, really the best kind of window that they've had in a long time, uh, probably ever. Um, more, you know, uh, prominent Democrats have said they support statehood in recent years. Uh, President Biden has said in the past that D.C. should be a state. Uh, so there is some kind of momentum. And I think, uh, meanwhile, uh, the events of January 6th, uh, you know, left a lot of uh, people in D.C., both the kind of elected local leaders there and just regular residents, uh, you know, feeling uh, more at odds with the federal government. Uh, And this fence kind of symbolizes that, right? Um, Right. uh, You know, it was imposed, uh, this temporary fence that's there now was imposed, uh, you know, immediately. uh, And uh, people kind of understand that it, it needs to be there. I think it reassured people, especially in the initial days after the the riot, but now there's this proposal to, to put up a permanent fence. And, uh, you know, as, as uh, one person I interviewed said to me, we already don't have any representation in Congress, and mm. now they're kind of walling it off for us from, from us in addition to that. What's the political will to make a change? And I'm just curious, Republicans versus Democrats on this. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a pretty clear uh, split there in that uh, D.C. statehood is much more favored, yeah. you know, by Democrats, by liberals. Uh, and uh, part of the reason for that is that, uh, you know, the, the district, which has uh, 700,000 people now, um, is, you know, one of one of the most uh, solidly Democratic voting places in the country. Um, people don't vote for, you know, uh, they don't have a voting 
uh, representative in the House or, or senators um, who can vote, but but they do vote for president. And I think they voted for Joe Biden more strongly than anywhere else in the country. I mean, there are there are other reasons, too, in that, uh, you, you know, there are uh, objections on the grounds that it it's, uh, would not be constitutional, uh, you know, or, um, you know, that D.C. was really intended to be a federal district. So the, the, the objections are not entirely partisan, but that is definitely part of it. So, Amanda, very briefly, um, look, it makes sense that Democrats want D.C. to be a state for politically. It makes sense. But is there a chance that it happens in the near future? Any chance at all? And we only have about 20 seconds. Oh, we don't. We actually yeah. ha- we can have more time with you. I'm sorry. We get more time with you, Amanda. <laughs> We say Amanda's on. We we're just gonna go. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think the answer is still pretty succinct, which is they have their best window they've ever had right now, but it's yeah. still pretty slim. Um, I think uh, they're not going to get sixty votes in the Senate uh, to pass in this Senate to pass statehood. Uh, they would have to sort of either eliminate or kind of work around the filibuster. I think there are you know ways they could make a rule change where they would say statehood votes don't need you know 60 votes uh but even that seems like uh, it would be it, it would require an expenditure of political capital that that uh, perhaps you know not everyone would be enthusiastic about even on you know among the democrats so, so it makes me wonder what our forefathers would think um but i do wonder amanda hurley what kind of a state would it be if it was on its own is there a state across the u.s that it kind of is similar to uh, well, let's see. In population terms, it's the most similar, I believe, to Vermont and mm. Wyoming with 700,000 people. But it would be uh, it would have the highest share of, of, uh, of black residents of right. um, of any state. Uh, as I said before, it would be very solidly Democratic voting, at least, you know, for the time being. And it would still um, it would still have this kind of federal uh yeah, district at the very heart of it, where, you know, all of the government buildings and the National Mall and monuments would be. So it's not like that's going to go away. That would just shrink. And uh, D.C. would otherwise kind of have the powers of, of a state. But I think, you know, that that means that whatever happens, that tension between the district and the federal government is never going to go away entirely because of that. What about people in Washington, D.C.? I mean, do do they want this to happen? How do they feel about this? Yeah, I think the last time there was a, a poll or survey done, uh, support, at least for a, a statehood referendum, was at 86%. So, um, you know, and a lot of the local uh, uh, political leaders are pretty strong statehood proponents, excuse me, um, the uh non-voting congresswoman for the district, Eleanor Holmes Norton, has introduced a statehood bill into the House, uh, you know, year after year after year. Mm. Uh, so, and uh, certainly a number, if not all of the members of the the D- district, uh, the D.C. Council as well, support statehood. Um, it, it's a pretty common sentiment, even the D.C. license plate, if you've ever seen it. The, the standard motto on the license plate is, end taxation without representation. So people do feel pretty strongly about it, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty clear. What about people like beyond DC, like the rest of the country? Are people, do they do they have any strong feelings about it? Yeah, I think in the rest of the country, I think a lot of people sort of aren't, don't think a lot, you know, as yeah. understandably about the issue and what it means to, uh, to district residents. 
Uh, I think the last time uh, there was a Gallup poll a couple of years ago, and support for D.C. statehood was not very high. It was, I think, around 30 percent or even lower. And um, a lot of people feel that uh, maybe you know it shouldn't be a state, maybe because they think it's you know very small or uh, or that it's uh, you know maybe they think it's for partisan reasons only that uh, that people would uh, would want it to become a state. Uh, so, yeah, it's not an issue that I would say has attracted really broad support outside of the D.C. area. Are there are there certain members of, of Congress right now um, who are sort of surprising on the issue? Like, is this are there any Republicans who support this or do they know that this is just so dangerous politically? That's a good question. I'm actually not aware if any Republicans have come out and said you know what, uh, D.C. residents uh, should be able to, you know, have representation in Congress, too. And, um, and look, they're, 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 it is dangerous politically for them because it would the margins right now are razor tight. And right. if D.C. were to become a state, think about who that enfranchises, right? A, a group of voters who largely voted, as you mentioned, Amanda, for vice for President Biden now. Uh, and and also, uh, it would give them senators who would likely be Democrats and really change the balance of power. That's right. I mean, the D.C. senators, if it had them, would almost certainly be Democrats, you know, two Democrats, uh, which would, uh, you know, in the current situation, easily, you know, tip control of the Senate, uh, you know, from, from the 50-50 split. Right. Uh, you know, easily tip it over to the Democrats and giving them a kind of margin. So, so yeah, I do think that it's kind of a paradox of the current situation uh, for statehood advocates that while having this democratic trifecta in Washington gives them this opportunity that they're excited about, it, uh, you know, having this 50-50 split also probably uh, illustrates for, uh, for Republicans and for other opponents uh, just, <laughs> just how much of a difference it would make uh, if, if the district uh, were to become a state and, you know, how that would change the political calculus. Yeah, and does it open the door then for Puerto Rico or something? I don't know, like, who knows? Um, but it's very provocative. Uh, and those visuals, I highly recommend everybody go to Bloomberg.com and see a little bit of that more. Uh, Amanda, thank you. Amanda Colson-Hurley, politics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek uh, from the nation's capital. This is Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. We had a big story, a big business story over the past week, and this is about Marriott International naming uh, uh, Tony Capuano as chief executive officer, tapping someone who is well known to the company to really lead this hotel giant's recovery after the COVID-19 pandemic. So we are delighted to welcome Tony to Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us on the phone in Bethesda, Maryland. Tony, great to have you here with Tim and myself. How are you? And, and I have to say, um, many of us here at Bloomberg, we've been thinking about you and the Marriott family after the loss of Arnie Stearns. And he was always, always so generous with his time to so many of us here at Bloomberg, and especially over the last year when we know personally and professionally he was dealing with so much. Well, thank you, Carol, and thanks for having me back. It's uh, obviously been a tough week for all of us. Uh, I talked to our team around the world over the last few days and, and the two words that I really thought about were ref, uh, reflection and resolve. Uh, all of us are reflecting on the, this, this terrible loss, uh, the loss for Arnie's family, the loss for the extended Marriott family, uh, and the loss for the business community more broadly, as, as you suggested. But I think there is a real resolve here. Um, this is a company that is approaching its 94th anniversary. 
and we've been through recessions and 9-11 and the great financial crisis and the pandemic. And it's a company that has the resolve to continue to build and grow and create opportunities for our folks and really help the company realize its promise. Well, uh, but it's been a difficult week. No, and, and you've really all been on our minds. Um, and you talk about family and you think about the Marriott family, your franchise owners, uh, you treat them like they are family members. Tell me how they are doing in this environment and what it looks like uh, going forward this year and then beyond. Well, the pandemic is obviously a historic and, and terrible crisis from a whole host of perspectives. Uh, the travel industry has been hit particularly hard and a lot of the weight of that, that um, impact has fallen on the shoulders of our owners and franchisees. Um, uh, they are under tremendous financial pressure. Uh, some of the hotels at the, the outset of the pandemic, we had hundreds of hotels close. Mm -hmm. uh, on a global basis, we were running 12% occupancy and that created great distress for our owner community. Uh, as we've seen through the last number of months, we are seeing slow and steady recovery, particularly domestically in drive-to destinations. Uh, interestingly, China, which seems to have its arms relatively around the virus, uh, we're seeing occupancy levels approaching pre-pandemic, which is quite encouraging and maybe represents a bit of a roadmap for the rest of the world. But at the same time, we continue to see instances where there's a spike in infection rates in a given market, and it has a pretty stark chilling impact on the pace of demand growth. Uh, Tony, you ran the uh, hotel, the you, you ran the company's hygiene initiative. Um, what should customers expect if they haven't traveled to a Marriott property uh, in a few years or since the pandemic started? How will that experience be different post-pandemic? I think in a few ways. I think really starting during the booking process, uh, when they go to Marriott.com to, to make their reservations, there are pretty uh, thorough and transparent disclosures about any uh, modifications we've made to the operations of a given hotel. Whether there are outlets that are closed, that have limitations on capacity, or modified hours. Uh, when they arrive, uh, they will see every one of their fellow guests and every Marriott associate in masks. They will see electrostatic cleaners uh, uh, disinfecting the public areas. Uh, they will have optionality around whether they want daily housekeeping, but they know that when they arrive in their room for the first time, that there is a hospital grade level of cleaning that's been done to that room before their arrival. And they will experience a lot of advances that we've made in, from a technology perspective uh, to make it as touchless an environment as possible. We've made some pretty significant upgrades to the Bonvoy app and the ability to check in remotely, to order room service remotely. Uh, there's a chat function to talk to the hotel staff if there are service requests. And so I think those are the most significant changes. How much of it stays with us, Tony? Listen, you're someone who I know used to travel i'm assuming a lot and we can talk about how much traveling you've been doing i used to travel a lot haven't done much in 12 months how much of what changes in the hotel industry the hospitality industry really stays with us longer term like it sounds like some of the digitization and the apps like that to me sounds like a great thing um i'm hoping there's a day when i can walk into a hotel lobby and i don't have a mask on and i don't have to be so worried and i like housekeeping i'm just gonna say <laughs> so i'm just curious how much stays with us do you right. think longer term <laughs> 
Yeah, I, you know, all of these decisions are often informed by what we hear from our guests, mm. but I think your intuition is right. I, when I look across all the changes we've had to make in response to the pandemic, I think the, the technological advances, the optionality of touchless experiences, I think those will continue post-pandemic. Uh, the, the nice thing will be, to your point, we all aspire to get to a place where no one has a mask, there are no plexiglass uh, barriers, and then it will really be based upon guest preference. There are some guests that love to go to the front desk, engage with our associates, get local restaurant recommendations, and there are others that want to check in, get a mobile key, and go straight to their room. And I think we all look forward to the day where we can offer both of those options to our guests. Hey, Tony, we saw something really interesting happen at the beginning of the pandemic. When lockdown started back in March, Airbnb really struggled and they they struggled very quickly and laid off employees. And then a, a, a few months later, the company really started to recover as as people wanted to spend a long time in homes away from their primary residences. I, I'm wondering how you think about Airbnb and how you're thinking about competition from Airbnb over the next few years. Well, Tim, we, um, as you know, in 2019, we launched Marriott Homes and Villas, uh, not with a, an eye towards going head to head with Airbnb. Uh, I don't think we'll find ourselves in the business of traditional home sharing uh, or couch surfing or any of those areas. Um, but we've really focused on the upper end of the market and whole home rentals. And we think the value proposition that, that we offer is really predicated on uh, consumer confidence around safety, uh, a service level that our customers expect, and a linkage to the Bonvoy loyalty program. And since that 2019 launch, where we had about 2,000 homes, we've grown to over 25,000 homes. We think in a, a few short months, we'll be on every continent. And the thing we like about that business, we hear from our customers that for very specific trip types, they like the notion of whole home rentals. And by launching this platform, it allows us to keep them within the Marriott ecosphere. Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, you know, Tony, one thing I wanna ask you, you guys have so many different brands under your umbrella. There's the Ritz-Carlton, there's St. Regis, there's the W, there's Sheridan, there's Home and Villa. I mean, there's just so many. Does everything stay with you going forward or do you kind of take this time to look at the business and say, maybe we do some consolidation of brands? I know each brand kind of has its, its market, but I do wonder how you look and maybe change the business, tweak it going forward. Yeah, Carol, we actually love the breadth of our brand portfolio. Mm -hmm. And I think we like it because of the choice that it offers. Certainly the choice to our consumers, but also to our owners and franchisees. Uh, we find from a consumer perspective, depending on trip type, they may choose one of the hotels in our portfolio uh, in the economy tier. Then they may plan a family vacation and go to a luxury resort. And similarly, the vast majority of our owner community are multi-unit owners, and they would like to continue to grow their portfolios within the Marriott family. Having that breadth of choice gives them lots of options as they look to continue to invest uh, in the Marriott flags. So Tim and I, Tony, cannot wait to get back on a plane. For here, here. fun, for work, I cannot wait. I've missed it. Have you been traveling much for, tra for, for work or traveling at all? 
I have, although I think the last time I was in studio with you, mm. uh, you were shaking your head at a number I shared with you <laughs> that I had been traveled 225 <laughs> nights the prior year. Uh, I'm obviously at a small fraction of that today. And unfortunately, because of some of the borders that are closed, I'm not traveling internationally nearly as much as I would like. Yeah. Uh, but I've been in New York, I've been in Los Angeles, I've been in Miami, um, visiting our teams and our associates across the country. And uh, I have my passport in my, my uh, back pocket and uh, I am ready as soon as some of the borders start to open. I'm jealous, business travel. How long do you think before it really comes back to what, we've see, what we saw pre-pandemic? Well, there are, as you know, Carol, there are lots of opinions out there about whether we've seen some sort of permanent change yeah. in the demand for business travel. Uh, and, and time will tell which of those opinions is accurate. As we talk to our customers around the world, uh, we certainly think leisure will lead the recovery, but we are already seeing green shoots for business transient demand. And we think fundamentally that is a business that will come back strong. What we hear from our customers uh, not dissimilar to you and Tim's comments, they miss being on the road. They miss visiting their, their business partners, and maybe most importantly, they miss visiting their customers. And so we're, we're quite optimistic about the long-term uh, demand for business travel. Hey, very briefly, The Tony. only other thing I would say to you is, sorry? No, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, the one thing that may shift a bit, Carol, about business travel as folks have gotten more and more comfortable conducting business over Zoom or Microsoft Teams, they have started to learn that perhaps they can do a better job blending leisure and business travel. Mm. And so there will certainly be certain business purposes where they need to be in person, but they may also say to their family, let's go for three or four days of vacation and I'll carve out a day in the middle and conduct business via technology. All right. Great stuff. Listen, thank you so much. You're, you too. So gracious with your time. We really appreciate it. And again, we're thinking about all of you guys over at Marriott. Tony, be well. Uh, stay safe. Tony Capuano, he is Chief Executive Officer at Marriott International on the phone from Bethesda, Maryland. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. Another day where we saw some selling and then buyers coming back into the trade, Tim. So let's get to Dan Morgan, VP and Senior Portfolio Mo Manager over at Synovus Trust Company. They've got roughly $20.6 in assets under management. He's with us once again on the phone in Atlanta. Dan, good to have you here with us. How you doing? Hi, Carol. Hi, Tim. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. God, have we not <laughs> talked to you since, uh, I guess? Yeah, I don't think, not yet. We did a bunch of stories uh, kind of in the, you know, tail yeah. end of last year, but then things got crazy with the election. And so, but we're back today talking chips. Yeah, talking chips. Well, listen, this is a big story. NVIDIA is going to be out after the closing bell. But uh, we are all focused here at Bloomberg, watching the administration, watching the industry, because these chip shortages, what do we need to know about this and what needs to be done? Well, you're right. You know what, Carol, it's really interesting because last time we talked, we talked about how a large percentage 
of chips are actually built outside the U.S., right, over Mm -hmm. in the Pacific Rim. We have all the engineering, marketing, and design skills here, but we're actually, most of our plants are fabulous, which means we don't produce the chips here. And there was actually, you and I talked about it. Then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden, I noticed a couple weeks ago, or in the last 10 days, all the chip companies got together and signed a letter and sent it to President Biden saying, you know, we need to start building chips here in the U.S., and how better way to get rid of some of these shortages than to have control of your supply. And right now, unfortunately, we don't have that, and that's what's causing these shortages and these problems. But, of course, Carol, you and I were already ahead of the head of the ball here in terms of identifying that issue before it became a major story. Hmm. Hey, hey, Dan, um, just in the last few minutes, CNBC reporting that GM says the worst of the global chip shortage may be behind it. Is that something that, that you're seeing at all? Well, I think so. I mean, if we think about what's happening in the semiconductor business right now in terms of the overall cyclical recovery, and you think about, let's say, autos and industrials, which have been coming back very strongly. And I know at one point we had some shutdowns, right, with some of the auto manufacturers where they couldn't even deliver certain models because they couldn't get the chip. So slowly that's starting to unthaw a little bit. And, you know, if we look at just a week ago, analog devices reported numbers and their auto division was up 19% in terms of revenue. So I think that's getting behind us and things are getting better. Uh, but it'd be great if we could move those facilities here to the U.S. and we wouldn't have any problems. So, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yes, everything would be solved. That's an entirely <laughs> different conversation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that it were so. Hey, but Dan, wait a minute. Listen, you're much smarter than I when it comes to chips. There's lots of different kinds of chips. Are you talking about that we need to bring all kinds of chip manufacturing back to the United States? Well, you're right. I mean, we talk about the autos industrials. One thing we always say, Carol, is that not every chip company is exactly the same. So, um, I mean, when I say every, it would just be good to have a larger percentage of the chips produced here domestically to kind of meet some of these areas that are really going to continue to be kind of secular growth stories. And we talked about this before, Carol and Tim, the cloud, which we all know is a great space, gaming, and then this huge 5G rollout, especially in not only with smartphones, with, let's say, an Apple, but also from the communications infrastructure you know, perspective in terms of rolling out the base stations in terms of 5G. So I don't know if we can get all of these areas here in the U.S. domestic, but if we could get a larger percentage, because I think at this point, we talked about this before, Carl, I think it was only, it was like 80, 90 percent was being produced outside the yeah. U.S. It was a it's huge remarkable. number. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's talk more NVIDIA, a company reporting earnings after the bell today. Speaking of chips, uh, what would you ask management if you had the opportunity to do so? Well, I think, Tim, you know, obviously we're going to be following expectations in terms of data center revenue, which is about $1.88 billion, gaming at $2.39 billion. I think something that's been kind of a hot topic has been how is this acquisition going, going to, is coming along in, return, in regards to the ARM deal? That was something that's somewhat mm-hmm. controversial. Um, it really gives them a leg up in artificial intelligence, but they have about a 39% market share, and they're kind of head of some of these other, you know, players in that space, Xilinx is in that space space lattice. So it's kind of interesting to see if we can get a little bit more color from management. If that deal will in fact go through, there's been some pushback from some of the other chip makers that saying, hey, we don't want 
arm to be owned by NVIDIA. So I think that could be on the center stage beyond just hitting those targets in terms of revenues. Well, is that deal going to go through? Well, that's where I wanted to go. I mean, there's some big companies are questioning this uh, acquisition. Yeah. Google, Microsoft, Qualcomm. I mean, some of the world's largest technology companies, they're complaining to U.S. antitrust regulators. Uh, when you look at that deal from an antitrust perspective, as an analyst, as an investor, do you think there's a problem? Well, Carol, you know, for listeners out there that aren't familiar with the model, right, it's kind of like a Qualcomm, right? Mm -hmm. They are an intellectual property model, which is they collect fees in regards to their, you know, what they're providing in terms of the designs and so forth. They're not like a company that produces chips like, let's say, Intel and, you know, turns out microprocessors and sells them to PC manufacturers. So they're a little bit of a different animal. And the fact that they work with so many other chip companies in terms of, providing these this tech you know this intellectual property that that could be somewhat of a you know a monopoly right that nvidia would have over this company that's so different it's not just a you know like a company that produces more gaming chips so i think that that is kind of interesting carol like you said that we're getting this pushback mm-hmm. and could this be an antitrust issue that then derails the deal because um, everybody's saying wow this would be a sweet deal for nvidia but not so good for everybody else So so do you think it happens? (laughs) Well, I'm hopeful. I mean, you know, that's why you mentioned, Tim, in the beginning about what we want to hear from management. I think that's got to be on center stage, right? How's that deal coming along? What's the issues with the DOJ or, you know, antitrust issues? And if that, you know, will consummate. So I'm I'm hopeful and optimistic they can execute the deal. I think it'd be great for them, as I mentioned, in AI. Um, And hopefully they can set up some firewalls where they're not interfering with other companies that are using... Um, arm in terms of some of these designs, you know, and then creating some sort of competitive advantage. I think that's what everybody's really worried about. Hey, just 20 seconds here, the tech pullback rally, any thoughts on it? Well, it's interesting, Carol, because tech made such a huge run. It did so well. I mean, yeah. I was just looking at the charts because we've been talking about chips for such a long time. Yeah. Do you realize that the SOX is up 250% from the low that it hit yeah. in March? I mean, unbelievable, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's only natural that we're going to get a bit of a pullback. But, you know, you're talking to the wrong guy, Carol and Tim, because you know I'm always bullish on technology, right? <laughs> Listen, as Kathy Wood said to us yesterday from ARC, right? Uh, things don't go up in a straight line. Dan Morgan, thank you so much. Senior Portfolio Manager over at Synovus Trust. Joining us once again on the phone from Atlanta. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.